Okay, welcome to the podcast. Today I have special guest Michael J. Green, attorney here in Honolulu. How's it going, Mr. Green? Well, it's good. I mean, I'm at home, at home but, uh, you know, it is what it is, so. Yeah, we are in the middle of the lockdown because of COVID-19. Uh, how have you had to change how you service your clients in this new era of COVID-19? Well, you know, it's um, the people that, that want to see me, whether it's for a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, family, friend, you know, we, we, we have free consultations like many lawyers do. But for me personally, it's the personal contact in my office that's so important for your clients to be able to look at you for you to look at them, whoever comes in with them. Oftentimes they bring in teenage children who are terrified about things that are happening to their mother, their father, or a family member. You know, the object is to make the people feel better after they've visited with me in my office when they leave. You know, you've got to be brutally honest about certain facts, but usually when they come in, I haven't seen any of the discovery, police reports, grand jury transcripts, and oftentimes FBI reports and, and grand jury transcripts. So the important thing is the is the initial contact and, and the personalness of being able to look at the client or potential client and for them to get a feel for you and uh, how, you know, their level of comfort in having someone that they they believe they can trust in to help them. So you lose that when you're at home, of course, you only talk to them on the phone. Mm. So you've been long established here in Hawaii, but of course, you did start your career early on in Chicago. Do you have a story that you could share, maybe a big case that you had back in Chicago? Well, you know, um, when I started out in my own practice in the early 70s in Chicago, I wound up representing most of the street gangs, Latin kings, Latin queens, uh, disciples. Largest black gang in the country was the Peace Donation, Jeff Ford's gang. Uh, or, or he certainly didn't refer to it as a gang, but there were thousands of members. Um, a lot of violent crimes, uh, a lot of dope cases. Uh, but over the years that I was there, I also, and I'll talk to you about that a little bit, I uh, wound up in Miami representing Colombians and Cubans, mostly on dope cases, representing the cartel in Mexico. Uh, they had people that were muling do dope and money, guns also, uh, out of Miami to the West Coast and up through the Midwest. But I think the most important case in my career where I kind of hung it up and sold my practice and decided to relocate was 1985-86. Uh, uh, I was hired by the Cleveland Cavaliers to represent uh, a guy who was their first-round draft pick, a guy named John Hotrod Williams. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about the case because he passed away some years ago at the age of 53. But he was, he was accused in New Orleans by the prosecutor down there of, of conspiracy to commit sports bribery and that common term for that is, is fixing games, basketball games. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, it's a billion dollar industry betting on sports. And then uh, we had nationwide coverage, ESPN every day. And, and uh, uh, he was accused not only by the prosecutor, but four of the stars testified against him. You know, they all took money to fix two games for sure, which was Southern Miss and, and, and Memphis State. And uh, there was an agreement to fix three more that never happened. So there was a conspiracy but actually they testified to two fixes and uh, they said, you know, they couldn't control the game. It was the big guy, my client that controlled everything. And it was mm -hmm. a major, major case. And uh, uh, it was dismissed by the judge in 85 for prosecutorial misconduct. Louisiana Supreme Court sent it back in 86 for a retrial. And we won mm -hmm. the case in 86. And John went on later on to sign the largest uh, uh, basketball contract in history at the time 
Um, that was before the Jordan days and things like that. He got $26 million, uh from a team in Miami, and the Cavaliers had to match that. He went on to a pretty good career, and he was a terrific young man. He'd come out and visit us uh, in Hawaii once a year. And, uh, uh, it was a wonderful relationship. And, and uh, as far as cases I've done, they have a tendency to repeat themselves, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of, of violent crimes, dope cases. But, you know, to have a case where you're hired by uh, one of the biggest franchises in the NFL and the NBA and mm-hmm. to have the United States uh, audience looking at this case, all the, 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 the featured reporters for the, the sports pages came and watched the trial. So it was, it was a great case for me. And uh, even when I do cases in the South now, uh, there are lawyers down there that want to talk about how Ron Williams. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've also bumped into you, and uh, you have told me stories about the 80s, South Beach, Miami specifically. Uh, could you tell us a story about South Beach? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's back in the 80s, early 80s, the federal government, there was a parole board, and a lot of the Cubans that were mewling dope and money um, came out of the Castro prison. So, you know, going to trial down there, if somebody got convicted and they got 20 years, they'd usually do six years, eight months in a federal prison that, that was like a hotel compared to where these guys came from. If they got 10 years, they did three years, three months. And, and people were not, they weren't testifying against other people. You didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't have family testifying against family. You didn't have best friends testifying against best friends. And, and there was so much dope down there that these mm-hmm. guys that were mewling, mewling dope in, in banana boats that went 80, 90 miles an hour, uh, full of dope, if they saw uh, what they thought was a patrol coming at them, uh, uh, they, they simply dumped everything in the water. So so the oh. Coast Guard, before they got to them, you know, everything was dumped. And people that used to walk up and down the beaches of Miami, for example, every once in a while a package would float in, they'd grab it, and they'd sell it. There was also wow. so much dope that if somebody got, got busted down there with a pound, of, uh, usually it was cocaine. Uh, the feds mm-hmm. didn't even bother with it. They turned it over to the state, and you can get a, a year uh, in jail for, for a pound or two pounds of, of what today the feds get you for that, you could be starting at 10. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's all changed. After the 80s when there was no parole board, uh, uh, there's cooperation agreement all the time. And in drug cases, um, there's usually one or more people that are testifying against other people in the conspiracy. So it's, it's changed dramatically. And it was like the Wild West down there. It stayed in a hotel in Florida, and, and the first language was not, was not English. And everybody yeah. down there was either, was either a federal agent or somebody charged with a crime. And uh, it was pretty crazy. How did you get, like, sort of into that circuit from Chicago? Well, you know, um, I started doing cartel cases, guys coming out of, uh, uh, out of Florida. They hired me to, to do dope, dope cases down, and it was in the Bible Belt. But they had cars mm-hmm. with, with, with a lot of secret compartments, a lot of dope, a lot of money. Uh, I was all over the country. The last one was in Dalton, Georgia. The one before that was in to come carry New Mexico. So I was all over the place. And, and mm-hmm. some of the people that saw me down there and doing those cases had people that were from Miami who were actually flying out of Miami, picking up dope, or they were bringing in dope in planes, putting it on boats. So one mm-hmm. thing just simply led to the other. There was just a lot more dope and a lot more money involved. And then people, you know, eventually that these planes didn't know what to do. The people with the money didn't know what to do with it. I mean, there were yeah. banks. I did a case. I did a case in San Antonio where bankers got indicted uh, for money laundering. And, and in one trial, the second trial, were all the people that were bringing in. And that, and that 
particular case, it was tons of marijuana from Mexico. So I've been all over doing it, and, and certain clients led me to other clients who led me to other clients, and, and it was uh, it was a wild west. I found it very interesting that I was getting audited almost every year by the Internal Revenue Service when I started doing those cases. Wow. Uh, what do you think led to that calming down? Um, was it the penalties? Was it just a natural progression? Because it's certainly not as crazy anymore. Well, first of all, I think they probably get 10% of the drugs that are coming into the country today. Oh, well, still only 10, huh? Oh, yeah. There's, it, it's being a little bit more sophisticated how they're doing mm -hmm. it. You know, um, when you look at some of the, the, the narco programs on, on Netflix, 70% uh, of, of the cocaine in the United States back then in the 80s is coming from, from Colombia. Um, there's mm -hmm. still dope coming in from Colombia. And I saw something the other day where, because of this pandemic, uh, people down in Colombia are thinking that uh, our, our federal agents and, and, uh, and police personnel are more concerned about about the pandemic and people getting really sick. And they've taken officers off areas where they'd be monitoring planes. I, I had a case uh, I investigated about a year and a half ago where the dope they say was coming in on uh, military planes uh, from Colombia. Um, so I mean it's still going on. The question is how much they can get off the street, and, and but it's still it's still a major, major, major source of revenue uh, from South America and Mexico. Wow. So you had um, a big time career in Chicago. You had, of course, down in the Bible Belt, South Beach. You had a lot of uh, narcotics cases. You're known around town here in Hawaii as like the high powered attorney with like the custom tailored suit and I bumped into you and uh, I once uh, asked you about your shoes and you said they were blue ostrich skin boots. Um, so where did your sense of like fashion and style come from? Um, was it some of your experiences down south? Uh, you know, it was, uh, I was single until I was in my thirties and uh, um, you know, I kind of lived alone and, and uh, I was, for, for whatever the reason was, I was very style conscious. And uh, mm -hmm. places that I would travel to and see clients and do things like that, they were, they were style conscious. And, and, and uh, one guy led me to his tailor, and I looked at his tailor, and he started making clothes for me, and then and some started making shoes for me. And it's, it's, you know, I just think that if somebody hires a lawyer and they walk into court with a lawyer, the lawyer should look like a lawyer. Now, the lawyer, pardon me, but the lawyer doesn't have to look like a pimp. Yeah. And, and, but the point is that he should at least appear to be successful and, and, and gain some respect uh, as to how he looks when, when the person walks in. So, I mean, I, I can tell you that if I'm doing a major drug case, I can guarantee I'm not going to wear a red tie and red shoes uh, and some gold watch. But, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, I think if it makes me feel good in the morning, and my wife or kids say, Dad, you look nice this morning. Uh, and I've had them say, Dad, you don't want to wear that. And I've taken it off. <laughs> but I, 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 just, I just think that, that it gives me a sense of, of feeling good about myself. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's a clean look. And I'm, listen, when I was in Chicago, not only did I wear a suit every day, but I went home, I showered. If I went out for the evening, I put on another suit. So, I mean, I was just used to wearing suits. So it's part of my everyday life, and I wear a suit virtually every single day I go to the office, whether I have a court appearance or, or I'm just seeing clients. I think it's important to, to look like a lawyer and look clean and, and uh, be proud of the way you look. And hopefully your clients are proud when you walk in and say, you know, that's Michael Green, he's my lawyer. That's important to me.
Yeah. And uh, what specifically, have you been like fixated on one specific piece of fashion? For example, ties, maybe sunglasses, maybe the, the little, is it like a handkerchief that goes in the pocket, the pocket square? What's been your latest kick? Wear a pocket square in Hawaii, you're going to get beat up. So I don't wear yeah. pocket squares in Hawaii. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, I have, it's like people that are addicted to drugs. I'm addicted, I'm addicted to ties. It's just, ties? It's just the way, it's been that way for years. And, and mm -hmm. sometimes when I, I have racks of ties, I'll go through them, you know, and I'll try to pick out things for the week, and I'll see I have the same tie twice. You know, I must have really liked it the first time. But, uh, no, I have an addiction to ties and sometimes sunglasses. Listen, I know lawyers that are addicted to cars, and, and they're addicted to watches. That's not my problem. Uh, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, 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 it's really neckwear ties and, and, uh, uh, and just things like that. And it's, I just if, – if, if you look good, you'll feel like you look good, and you shoot the chin, it's – it's not all wrinkled in the back or in the pants and stuff like that. It's uh, it gives me a feeling of, of of being a lawyer and looking like a lawyer. Absolutely. So um, unfortunately, we're all on a, a lockdown uh, right now. It's April 9th. We got at least until the thirtieth for this lockdown. Um, now that yeah, now that you're at home and I guess you don't have as many opportunities to go out and uh, you know put on the suit and everything. Uh, what's been something that you've like taken comfort in or have liked for the change and now working from home? Well, my office manager is sitting right across the table from me as we're speaking. Uh, I have stacks of files. Even even without this uh, pandemic, I work seven days a week. I bring the work home on the weekends, and I usually work a couple hours Friday night. I want to take a little time off because I've worked hard that weekend. But usually mm -hmm. Saturday afternoon and Sundays, uh, I, I could put in, if I'm in trial and getting ready for trial, I could put in 10 or 12 hours in those two days combined. And right now I'm going over some discovery with her and some billing records we're sending to our clients in the Philippines and, and things like that. But um, I, I miss the personal stuff with my clients. I, I'm, I have two phone calls I have to return this afternoon that people want to talk to me possibly about hiring me on two new cases. A uh, guy called me from Alabama yesterday on uh, a civil case they want me to do here. I miss the personalness of that. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll all get back together. Um, I have my staff. Uh, obviously, I, would, I still pay them. Um, and, and it's important to me because I'm as good as they are, and they make me better. So uh, I, just miss, I just miss being around uh, the lawyers in my office and the staff and uh, just to sit around and talk story, even if it's, you know, something that's not coming up that's really we're looking at someone that's in a lot of trouble or in a lot of pain. And we see a lot of pain in my office every, every, almost every day of the week, people that are in pain. And we try to make it better for them if we can. You can't be sex successful with everything. But as long mm -hmm. as you know you've done the best you can and the people know you've given them everything, uh, even if they're not exactly always thrilled with the result, we, we, we do the best we can. So criminal uh, law defense, civil law, um, running your own office, I know these are high-stress things. What do you do to unwind and relax? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I came here 31 years ago, and I play golf on Saturday morning with two of the guys I've been playing with for 25 years. I don't ever. And uh, with the first group out, there's usually four of us, sometimes five, and we finish, we just sit around and talk, and I still stay in touch with some of my, the guys I went to college with 50 years ago. Uh, I spoke mm -hmm. to some of them last week. Um, and, you know, my family's really close. A Filipino-Chinese wife, uh, come home sometimes, there's 10 or 15 people at the house, and I'm not sure how many are still living there or not living there. 
but it's uh <laughs> it's listen you know it's it's uh i have no family that's alive so uh uh that family is part of my uh that's my family and and uh they're always around they're very supportive some like to come to watch trials my wife Estelle used to travel around the country and watch watch trials she was uh uh, she would critique me all the time. And sometimes when I first came to Hawaii, she said, you know, you can't. You can't cross-examine local people the way you do it in, in Chicago or California. Uh, you can't mm. do that. And and sometimes when she's watching, I'll turn around during cross-examination, and she has a look on her face, which is, I told you not to do that. But, you know, it's worked out. I've been I've been received well by, by uh, juries here, federal and, and state juries and federal judges and state judges in the prosecutor's office. I... I treasure a lot of friendship I have in the prosecutor's office, both federal and state, the public defender's office, and in, 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 in our private sector. I, I love the lawyers here, and I think we have some of the, the best judges I've appeared in. And I've been over 20 states representing people mm. before I came here. Um, uh, we have some of the finest judges I've ever had the pleasure of appearing in front of. So, so listen, it's not a perfect system, but it's one of the best I've ever had the pleasure of working in. All right. So I know your time is valuable, and I'm, I'm very grateful for you taking my call. I know you got a lot of things to do, even during downtime. But I did want to add one more thing for the end of the podcast. Uh, do you have any positive stories, anything in your life, or anything that you're doing for people, you know, in the middle of this pandemic? Well, you know, um, we would normally go out to dinner maybe twice a month. Oh, I was a great cook, but, you know, she needs a break also. So now... We're trying to order two or three times a week takeout from restaurants that we would we would go to when when they were open for business. We want to support them as best we can, um, and uh, we try to make sure that we're more available to go pick up food from these restaurants. Um, people that that we have some work that needs to be around the house or outside on our grounds. We 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 have them come over so we can keep them employed. Uh, you know, this, these are these are tough times, and I've been blessed to be in Hawaii, and, and I never ever will take for granted what the people in this state have done for me and how they've reached out and, and they've been kind to me. So, mm-hmm. the very least we're going to do is pay back, and and uh, we try to give money to charities, and and, and especially but during during this time, try to, to to reach out to people that are that are hurting for money and for work and things like that. That's what we're doing, and I feel good about it. Oh, very good. Any other closing comments or thoughts that you want to add towards the end? You know, this is the greatest place uh, I've ever been, and, and I and we have the best people. And, and I have no doubt that we're going to bounce back. These are going to be tough times for a while. I mean, tourism mm-hmm. is, is most of our, our revenue in this state. It's going to be a while before it comes close to being back to what it was. But people care about each other in Hawaii. And I have mm-hmm. no doubt that uh, together we'll all get past this, and, and uh, uh, we'll be back to where we were very soon. Absolutely. That's a very good uh, that's a very good message for our listeners. So thank you very much for your time, Mr. Green. I really appreciate you participating in the podcast. Happy to talk to you, Nick. Do be well, buddy. All right, you too and your family. Thank you. All right, bye.